welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another DIFF podcast. And today we're going to examine the idea of intersectionality. This term was created and coined by Kimberly Williams Crenshaw in 1989, a black feminist US lawyer. Now, originally the term was created because largely ethnicity was ignored by the first wave of feminism, which broadly focused on the equality between white men and white women. And intersectionality is something that requires you to look at all the other nuances for a person, how it impacts on their privilege and how discrimination works against them and how society treats them. And it seems fairly obvious, but it does need looking at that if you are handicapped and a woman, it's going to be worse. If you are black and a woman, it's going to be worse in terms of privilege and discrimination. And why this is important is a Google article search on August 2020 for gender diversity in the workplace returned 1,140,000 results. A search for ethnic diversity in the workplace returned 403,000 results. And a search for intersectionality in the workplace returned just about 32,000 results. So the need for awareness of this topic and the importance of it in creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace is critical. So today to discuss this, I'm joined by Amy Gowdin. Amy is a marketing and diversity and inclusion consultant and has worked on campaigns for Snapchat, Adidas, Selfridges, and many more. Amy is also a public speaker, having previously spoken for Christie's and Bright Network and hosted interviews with a number of high-profile influencers and speakers, including Vanessa Kingori from Vogue. Earlier this year, Amy co-founded Become, which is all about helping women of colour to fulfil their potential. Partnered with CAMFED, supporting women's education in Africa, Become is all about narrowing the gender race wage gap, helping women of colour to kickstart their careers and advising clients on their diverse hiring and inclusive practices. We're also joined by Sarah Green, Head of Customer Acquisition at Virgin Money. Sarah joined Virgin Money in early 2016 to initially work within the interview team. Since then, she has moved to run the interview team, taken on responsibility for insurance business and the direct mortgage team, and now customer acquisition for all core banking products. Prior to joining Virgin Money, Sarah has worked in financial services for over 15 years with huge brands, including Barclays, British Gas, and the AA. Sarah is one of the outstanding leaders in our industry, and she just happens to be a woman. I was very careful not to say she's one of the outstanding women leaders because she's just a leader. 
So let's move on. So Amy, as a young woman of mixed heritage, what does intersectionality mean to you? Thanks, Barrett. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I definitely feel like my experiences as a mixed race woman are different to that of my white friends. And I feel like those differences were never talked about for quite a long time, probably not until Black Lives Matter movement last year. And that was important to me that they were spoken about because I felt like I was treated differently from, you know, going on a night out to in the workplace. And I think there'd been many instances that had happened to me in front of my friends and yet none of them acknowledged it. It's awkward sometimes to talk about our differences, but how important is that, you know, for our mental health, for our own personal experiences and relationships? Yes, but also in our careers. So we know that women of colour are most likely to leave a job in the first year of work. So it's important that we acknowledge our differences, talk through those differences to make sure that we feel acknowledged and we feel respected. And Sarah, how closely do you look at the fact that some of the people working at Virgin have two things that are potentially working against them in terms of whether it's gender and ethnicity or handicaps or whatever? So I think everybody strives to have a a more diverse workforce. But I I think reading about intersectionality was really interesting for me. As a leader of a few hundred people, it really puts in front of you the different experiences that people have had in the past and the challenges that they're moving towards from a very different starting place. And it really, really made me think about you can't take your own assumptions about a situation and apply that to everybody. And so I think it's really interesting to sort of take a step back and start to understand a lot more about the people that you work with. Because it's not just about those individuals, it's their experiences and and everything else that happens along the way. And I can't pretend to know Amy's experiences because I only have my experiences to go from. And very true. Uh, I mean, I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head already in the fact that you have to have a willingness to understand, you have to have a willingness to walk in someone else's shoes, but also to engage and ask them. Amy, did you find in your working life whether enough people or is it happening more now actually took time to say, what's it like being you? Honestly, no. And I remember first walking through the doors of my first job in my career in London and seeing that there was no one else in that space that looked like me, not a single other person. And nobody acknowledged that. So I instantly felt like it was the elephant in the room and that I had to adjust myself and be a chameleon in that space for the three years I was in that role. And that was just, I mean, first of all, it was quite startling to me because, you know, in London, obviously it's an incredibly diverse city and that diversity was there until I walked through that door and then there was nothing. So for me, it's something that's always been there. It's in the forefront of my mind, but I never know if anyone else is thinking about it because they never address it. So what I'm trying to encourage our community with become to do is speak out. It's your employer's responsibility to look after you, but they can only do that if you say what you need. And whether that's mentoring, some kind of counselling, further education and courses, it's up to you to lead that because they won't. Because we're very British in this society and we don't like to talk about things that make us uncomfortable. So sometimes we have to lead that conversation. Hopefully in the future, it won't just be down to us and it will be led by the employer. But at the moment, that I am not seeing that happening. It's interesting that you mentioned mentoring and the, the number of podcasts and conversations I've had. Personal allyship comes up so often that when we are doing our series of Trailblazer podcasts, nearly all of them have said, 
it was because one person believed in them. And, and it goes throughout anybody that comes from an underrepresented or underprivileged background. They need the belief of somebody above them or around them to push them on. Is that something that you encourage a virgin, Sarah? I know that you're a great believer in allyship and mentorship. Yeah, we definitely are. And and I have a great boss at the moment who is very, very supportive. But I think I'm the same as everybody else. I can remember people who have literally taken me with them to their next company. And I think that's so important that we don't let that go. And think about your responsibilities now as you move through that process yourself and and really think about succession planning and, and think about what we can do for individuals. I want to come back to the point that Amy's just raised around, I know we don't ask the questions of people and how they might be feeling, but I think there is a little bit of fear of getting it wrong and not wanting to say the wrong thing because we are very British. We are definitely individuals who are slightly more guarded in in the way that we go about things, trying to be correct in what we do, when actually it might be just nice just to say, I really don't understand. Can I just chat to you about this? And then that may get to know that individual a little bit more and help them on their journey because ultimately your assumptions of that person's journey may be completely wrong. You're assuming they want to climb the ladder really quickly or they may want to change career, but actually speak to them about it. And I think starting the conversation is the best way to do that. So I suppose I would ask, how do we actually ask those right questions with Without offending people. Indeed, that's a very good question because I'll ask what Amy's opinion is because obviously you can't go up to somebody and say, hi, mate, what's it like being brown? Because that isn't exactly the, a nice way of engaging in a conversation. There are ways to do it and people should do it, but people shouldn't be scared of getting it wrong. They should be able to be corrected and then people should be willing to correct people when they are spoken to in a way that's either inappropriate or just say, I think you mean this. Can we have a conversation about it? Amy, what would you say is a nice approach to ask somebody how they are feeling about the things that make them different? I think first, there are discrepancies of oppression. I think that's something that's really important to say. And people sometimes think that everybody's equally supported, but that's just not quite the case. So I would say one of the things is set up a DNI committee or call it a task force if you're more results orientated and just make sure that everybody has a chance to have their say in that space. We can't force people to be in that, but they can volunteer to be a part of that discussion. And that's just part of being an ally. And I'd say on that, I'm seeing a lot of Afro-Caribbean societies or feminist groups or LGBTQ plus societies, which are absolutely fantastic. But I think the question we need to start asking is how do they interact with each other and what's their purpose in the company? So if those conversations conversations are only happening behind closed doors, then it's just people with similar experiences and outlooks who are then just feeding their own perspectives. (laughs) So they have the same blind spots. And that's not the thing that's going to change mindset and help to instigate change. So in the workplace, you need people who want to join that conversation, who want to be allies and understand new perspectives, and basically want to help make sure that everyone belongs and is looked after. There are language mechanisms that that I talk through in my workshops that you you can look through. So the calling in versus calling out to make sure that you are being listened to, you actually have to listen to somebody else. And that is what is going to help to encourage conversations is people feeling like they're on an equal footing. I mean, I think it's one way to engage in a conversation 
we talked about this in a previous podcast on microaggressions. My daughters are always asked, where are you from? When what people really want to know is, why are you here and you're brown? Can you tell me a bit about your heritage and a bit about your history? And I can see Sarah's point of view, because the first thing you say is, I, I want to know where you're from. And my daughter's response would always be, well, I'm from Isha, um, or well, where are your parents from? Or my, parent, my dad's from Manchester, my mom is from Hereford. And what people want to know is tell me a little bit about your heritage. And I think that's the way you should ask that question and not be ashamed of asking it and even maybe preface it by saying, I'm interested, I don't want to cause any offence, but could you tell me your heritage, your backstory? And I think that's a nice way of starting a conversation with people. I absolutely agree. And in the workplace, what that can translate to is surveys. So the company can ask questions to their staff and ask the necessary questions and read into those answers. So you can ask your employers, oh, how do you identify? But then make sure that you're questioning those answers that say, oh, I'd prefer not to say. So does that signal that they don't feel comfortable or supported enough to say who they are? Does that sort of help, Sarah, in terms of some thoughts on initiating a conversation, which I can understand from the initiator, can feel tricksy? Yeah, it definitely does. And I'm sure it will help everybody who's listening to the podcast, to be honest with you, because there is a fear around things. And opening up open Teams chats and things. So we have Teams chats that are available to everybody, but have themes behind them so different networks etc and you can get notifications or be part of that and everything you know so whether that is the vets network that we've got we've got embrace which is more cultural network or or an lgbtq plus teams chat as well and it's interesting then you can partake as much as you want but you can also pull away from that if you want to if you've got other things to do or anything like that but it's a really nice way of surfacing things and making it more accessible. And I think more accessible means more people are talking about it and then it becomes better. But I just wanted to get your opinion because I know many people in the industry struggle. Let's talk a little bit about your situation, Sarah, because you're now fairly much near the top of the pile. And was it a struggle for you getting to where you were? Did you face sort of gender issues? I was on a fantastic LNG DNI debate with Michelle Galanska and Ali Crosley, and both of them said that they had suffered sexual harassment in their histoire and they had not been able to speak out about it and they were very clear that you should. So I'd just be interested if you had any issues of that nature when you were going through your work career. I think the starting point of my career really sort of sets the tone. So I started in a much more male-dominated industry than the one that I'm in now. And so as my career has moved forward, I've become more resilient and actually it's become more diverse. So just to explain, I started in a foundry in two locations where we were doing heavy industry. We were spinning iron pipes and making castings for manhole covers. And it's fair to say that every single person on that shop floor was male. And I was trying to look back and remember people. And I don't remember one female in the office that wasn't a personal assistant apart from me. So this was my very first job. I thought this was normal. You know, it was normal for me to make the tea in the office because I was female. It was normal for me on visits to sewage farms, construction sites, side of motorways to take all the comments that you can imagine go 
with that. And I used to dread walking across the shop floor to get from one side of the factory to the other because it was like running the gauntlet. So I think it was the 1990s and it's fair to say the working environment was a very different place. I think it's right we kind of park that in the past and then we kind of move forward and see how things have gone. So starting from that pretty low end, I would say my career has got easier, but I think that's made me pretty resilient to what's there, whether you call that sexual discrimination or not. It's just what happened to me right in my very first job. And I was there for maybe two years. And then I've moved across into bigger brands. Like you say, British Gas was my next job. So working in the gas industry and then moving across to the AA. So it sort of got better all the way through my career. I don't think it was ever as bad as where I started. You must have thought sort of working for Barclays agrees then. Let me ask you a question. Does it make it almost easier that it was so obvious? Is it worse when it is subtler, when opportunities don't arise or people smirk, they don't say anything, there's no wolf whistling, there's no obviousity to being treated differently, but there's some sort of underlying way that you feel you're being marginalised? I think I definitely worked really, really hard in my career. And, and you could perhaps quite early on in some of those bigger brands think about, you know, how hard you work compared to your peers. And I think there are some things that I didn't do that other people have done. Like I wasn't great at networking. And so a lot of people who networked really well got those opportunities, whereas I didn't. I always believed that doing a good day's work would get you the opportunity going forward. And that didn't always work for me. And it didn't become obvious until I worked for a lady in British Gas. And she was the one that took me across to the AA when, when those companies split and we moved forward and, and asked me to go with her. And that was the first real time I experienced someone recognising what I do. So I think I've been a little bit blind because of the heritage that I came from to some of those opportunities. I've just worked really hard. So maybe I've just worked harder than some of the colleagues around me. This sounds fairly recognisable, Sarah. And I'm sure, Amy, you have a similar sort of stories and, and heard similar stories of women and people from underrepresented groups having to do the same job, just having to do it twice as well, twice as harder, putting twice as much effort to have the same level of recognition. Do you find that recruitment practices nowadays are changing, Amy, and attitudes are changing towards women and, you know, women with ethnicity and women with handicaps, etc.? I do, definitely. I think unconscious bias training was kind of one of the first diversity inclusion training that companies introduced. And I think that has been helpful in just being able to acknowledge that bias exists and that it is there. You know, in the past, I know that for ethnic minorities, if there's only one ethnic minority in a talent pool, they have virtually zero chances of getting hired. Whereas if there's two ethnic minorities in the talent pool, their chances are 170 times greater, which is insane. It's ridiculous because the one ethnic minority is paired against all other candidates who are typically white. And I think, yeah, definitely mindsets are changing now. And there's lots of different procedures being put in place to protect candidates. So you have inclusive practices in interview. You have more inclusive job advertisements. And I think all of those are helping women of color to come forward because they feel more comfortable. 
You know, if you see a company that's transparent, that's got inclusive employer branding on their website, you are more likely to feel at ease. You're more likely to apply for the role. And I think now you're more likely to get it. But that's the argument that's quite interesting at the moment is that positive action versus positive discrimination. And I'm actually hearing a lot of my female white friends saying, oh, there's no point me going for that job they'll want to fill it with an ethnic minority candidate because they have quotas to fill now or they feel like that they're at a disadvantage for being white, which is quite an interesting flip. I don't think we're at that stage yet. I think that's something that, you know, they've probably seen a lot in the media happening or that's on their minds, but I don't think that is the case yet. I think it's still more difficult for women of colour. I think it's still more difficult for neurologically diverse candidates. People with autism are still the least likely to get employed after university, but the times, they are changing. What I've found inspiring when we had people like David Olasoga speaking and other certainly historians who are looking at the issue of ethnicity and race is that young people do not take this lying down and they're not happy to sort of like let the status quo carry on and exist. They want to work for a company that actually shows that it actually cares about DNI and they will choose companies based on those metrics, not just on opportunity and brand and whatever. And in fact, an openness to diversity and inclusion has got to be a very positive part of brand. And I know Virgin is one of the biggest brands in the world, uh, Sarah. And do you feel that Virgin, the brand, needs to show more about diversity and inclusion? Or do you think, because they're early adopters of women's charter and all this sort of stuff, do you think Virgin is one of the brands that really highlights what can be done? So I think we work really, really hard on it. And I don't know whether it actually gets recognised everywhere that we go. So I think the most recent, you know, women in finance stuff and everything else, we still do all of that with the Treasury. We're, we're still pushing for that. But times have moved on. It's not just about men versus women in the city. We've got a much wider agenda now. And I think that's really, really important. And I think there are challenging ways as an individual that you need to move things forward. We need to stop being lazy in recruitment. We need to stop thinking, oh, I need a BDM in my team. What other BDMs are out there? Because that doesn't get you a diverse mix in an industry that's already struggling. So when it comes to recruitment, it's very much down to the responsibility of the individual recruiting manager to think about your diversity when you're going out and trying to get the right kind of people applying for the job because everybody wants to go out and get the right kind of a people applying for the job. So we do try and push the boundaries of trying to get out to those audiences. But that individual manager has to have the responsibility of pushing back and saying, no, I'm not just taking five CVs. I want you to go out and find me a much better representation of the UK. I want you to go out and find me a much more diverse list of candidates because I don't just want five BDMs that are already in the industry. And I think what we need to do as an industry, particularly the mortgage industry, is go out and really recognise what the transferable skills are, really recognise what we really want from an individual. We need someone who is able to performance manage or has a specific skill set like 
like analytics or, you know, you're applying for the role because of those certain skill sets, not because you've been a BDM before or you've been a regional manager before. And I think that's really important. And making sure that you've got that balance first means you can make the right choices later. It's that very first step that's much more important than anything else. And if you're not reaching those audiences, what can you do about it? I think that's a very good point. And I hope more companies will take on board Amy's point that if you're going to have somebody from a different ethnic background to yourself in the talent pool you're looking at, you need to have two of them. Otherwise, they will not stand much of a chance getting it. So let's move on and discuss one aspect of intersectionality that uh, I am interested in, because it's very nuanced and you can add layers and layers and layers of it. And there's people that argue against intersectionality because they say, well, everybody is intersectional. People are tall, they're thin. Where does the line come between being an individual with lots of different aspects to your personality and your personal history and suffering from intersectionality or intersectional bias. So Amy, could you just give us your thoughts on individualism versus intersectionality? Absolutely. Just like you said, Barrett, some people don't agree with intersectionality. They feel that it simplifies them and their experiences and just kind of puts them and categorizes them into these arbitrary groups. And that can be quite damaging, actually, to be defined by a particular group experience, which is usually about your identity or or some kind of oppression that you don't identify with for whatever reason. So not every person in a particular classification will have the same or even vaguely similar experiences. So, you know, for example, my sister and I, we're we're half Jamaican. My sister's white passing, I would say. She looks whiter than I do, uh, meaning she can pass for a white person. So her experience may be very different to those in her demographic who are also mixed race. And it might be jarring for her, actually, to be put in these groups and assumed to have these various discriminations or advantages that she doesn't associate herself with. So I think it's true that every single person will have a different interaction with the world. We're all individuals, obviously. So we have to ask, is there any point in trying to categorize individuals? But I think it is. I do agree with intersectionality. As long as we make that judgment and we understand that no two people's experience will be the same, and to make sure that actually we include those multiple layers, like you said, Barrett, those multiple classifications, it cannot just be about race and gender because that's too vague and it's too reductive and there's too many other factors at play. So what about class? What about wealth and age and education? All of those are so important in making sure that we're presenting real and diverse experiences, basically. So if we don't discuss multiple classifications, then there's a lack of individuality, which isn't inclusive at the end of the day. I I mean, I I tend to agree with you, although there is a danger that you need to keep on top of it. You need leaders like Sarah and brands like Virgin, because there is this old story of top American law firms who would go out of their way to find a black woman in a wheelchair who recognised themselves as being lesbian, And they went, all right, we've got one of them. We don't need any more. And that, you know, it may be an apocryphal story, but the fact that it simply is a story is bad enough. And I think we need to constantly fight against that. Sarah, you have mentioned that the mortgage market needs to do more in terms of its diversity and inclusivity. How does it fare with the other industries that you've actually worked in? I'll just quickly pick on a point that sort of Amy made before. And I think, first of all, it's got to be the right cultural fit. And this is why it's important. 
important to the question you've just asked. There is no point, as you say, getting that person in a wheelchair, et cetera, et cetera, to tick the box. If culturally, when they arrive, it's just not right. You've got to make sure that the environment that those individuals are operating within actually is a place that they want to work. You've got to allow people to be themselves. You've got to allow people to be able to express the way that they are, whatever they want to express. It's all about making sure that that fits alongside with the day job and they can feel comfortable, feel part of a community, which is why that we're trying to make a family environment more than that work corporate environment. And I think that's where your question comes in is if you turn up to a workplace that is in an ivory tower and you feel like you have to act in a specific way to get on, it becomes very stressful. I've worked in a time where you you go out and you buy your trouser suit and you work to fit in and you know you must go along and do these types of things to fit into those types of environments. And that can be anything from, oh, Sarah, you must play golf. I can't bear golf. My team all know I can't bear golf. Through to how you feel you should act in the workplace and go home and be someone else. And that's not right because that becomes incredibly stressful for those individuals that are doing the role and ultimately will mean that they will leave. And I think that is something that I've experienced in the past. I often say to people, what's it like working at Virgin? And I said, it's like coming home. I can be the person that I am when I'm at work. And that's really important. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's a point that's been made on a previous podcast by Esther Dexter, who again, wants to be the person that she is, doesn't want to be the person who's loud and bangs their fists on the table and bullies their way into getting a big promotion or whatever. She wants the promotion and the accolade and recognition for doing the job in her own way. And I think that is fantastic that you're allowed to do that, Sarah. Before we sort of like start wrapping up, I don't know how I feel about asking this because I always ask it. It always comes up and and I'm asking you if it's okay to talk about imposter syndrome. Is it okay to talk about it or is it just such a cliche now? Amy, was it okay to talk about imposter syndrome? Absolutely. I think it's really important to. I'm always raving on about it. Yeah, definitely. And particularly with that kind of intersectional lens, because I think it's important for everybody to understand your own prejudice. So on two levels, A, what prejudice might you have for others, but also are you affected by any prejudice? And if so, does that impact your work life, your mental health? Do you suffer from imposter syndrome because of that? So sometimes I think we blame ourselves for the prejudice we experience and that manifests itself in imposter syndrome. So, you know, we say it's my fault. I'm not progressing as fast as everyone else, you know, even though I'm putting in the same hours, but actually, you know, your manager favoring someone else isn't your fault. Uh, And I think a lot of women and and women of colour and people of colour in the workplace suffer from imposter syndrome because A, there's no one else like them there and B, they're not getting up the career ladder as fast as everybody else on the whole. So I think it's definitely important to look at imposter syndrome because it feeds into that kind of intersectional lens, understanding why we're being treated differently. Sarah, do you have a view on imposter syndrome? Have you ever suffered it? Yeah, and I think, you know, admitting that you do is something that most people that get to a certain level probably do think about. I started, like I said, making the tea in a foundry in the Midlands and then sometimes sit in London looking over the skyline and think, how the hell did I end up here? 
It's a really weird scenario to think. I wasn't very good at planning my career. I never set out with very specific tasks. I've enjoyed what I've done along the way and, and I've worked really hard at it. So I almost feel I should be here. And then you think, oh, blimey, am I, am I worthy of being where I am now? And I think it's something that we should openly talk about because actually, if you've got a problem you want to sort out, why not talk about it with other people? people and say, how would you approach this? Or how can I get this done, et cetera, et cetera. And, and like I say, I've got a great boss at the moment who I just go, can I just run this past you? You learn from that. And so you really should have a, a group of people around you that are your trusted source and not have to pick over the individuals and think, oh, dare I show my true colors to that person, but be able to talk openly because actually people on their own solve less problems than talking about it and getting people people's experiences and finding a much better solution as a group. So I would definitely say it exists. And I'd be interested to see your both your points of views on the male imposter syndrome, because there's two thoughts here. One is that when men feel imposter syndrome, it translates into bloody I've got one over on them. And it's a sort of like, you know, big tick in my box. But on a more nuanced level, I think men do suffer from imposter syndrome. And sometimes they are incapable of talking about it and incapable of engaging engaging as it's been an issue with men and has been talked about and maybe that the very high rates of suicide in young men is somehow coming from them suffering from imposter syndrome, them suffering in the positions that they are in, but having an inability to discuss that with anybody. I'd just be interested in both your points of view on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I have to confess, I honestly didn't know that imposter syndrome was a thing for men until I spoke to my fiance, who was leaving the Navy at the time and going into a, a civvy career, as he'd call it. And that was the first time I thought, my goodness, like you have imposter syndrome too. I thought it was just a kind of female thing or, or a minority thing. And I think he only spoke about it because I asked him about it, which is quite telling. He felt that that wasn't something he could say. And I think that's the case for a lot of men in the workplace right now. It's that kind of bravado masculinity that's still assumed to this day in the workplace. We talk about our women are overlooked for promotions because they don't fight for it as much. They're not as aggressive, assuming that men are and that they will. But that's also a pressure. Not every man is like that. And I think we need to acknowledge amongst men that there is that intersectionality there for them as well. Sarah, do you have a view on male imposter syndrome? I think it comes down to individuals, doesn't it? I think some people are incredibly confident, some people display incredible confidence, and some people just don't want to share that type of thing. So I think that's really important that actually someone has an outlet. It was so great to see during lockdown that some of our key figures in the industry were just putting out posts on social media saying, it's a tough time at the moment. If anybody wants to talk to me, I'm here. And I think that's really important because I don't think everybody's going to come to me and, and talk about it after this podcast. But what will happen is they maybe will think about it and think who they can turn to. And I think that's the most important thing is that it's okay to talk about it. And I'm not sure I know enough about the male imposter syndrome to be able to comment correctly on it. But I think talking about it is really important. Couldn't agree more. And it has come out of our conversation is some truths, which is intersectionality does exist. It is an issue, does need addressing, but how we address it has got to be through communication. We need to talk to people. People have actually got to be willing to talk back. And indeed, 
actually white males need to be part of this conversation because there's an intersectionality that affects them too. So on that note, thank you very much, Amy. Thank you very much, Sarah. And let's get talking. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.